today's class will be about the iconoclastic controversy that developed shortly after the Sixth Ecumenical Council and brought about our Seventh Ecumenical Council. The term iconoclasm means uh, comes from the term icon, and plasm is to destroy the icon. So the iconoclasts were people who wanted to get rid of icons, or icons in churches and homes, whereas uh, the Orthodox Church didn't have icons, and so at the time we were people who uh, supported the icon. The position of having icons were called the iconoduels, or the servants of icons. So this was a distinction. Now, there's several uh, things in which this controversy is ex is extremely unusual one compared to the ones we've been speaking about. Two things. One is in, when you're in the Arian controversy, you know, there's all these councils, and it seems like this very long controversy about, uh, you know, about. But it's not wasn't about Arius so much. As all the, I mean, Arius was condemned. Everybody agreed to that pretty quickly. What all the controversies and councils were about was how do we define what we believe about the Holy Trinity? So for most of the, con the church theological controversies of our church, what you see that's, that's really kind of a I guess testimony sort of to its apostolic origin of the church is that most of the people involved agree on the basic thing. They, you know, they believe there is a Trinity. Uh, they believe in the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It's just a question of, well, exactly how do we define the divinity of the Son in a way that doesn't take away from his being a separate person. And the same with the Christological controversy, in a way, uh, the controversy between the Gnosticites and the Orthodox are mostly about how do we express uh, Christ's incarnation, not whether Christ is incarnate. Now, what's interesting here in the iconoclastic controversy, we're going to see that, uh, what you may not know, is that there were two Seventh Ecumenical Councils. There was the uh, first Seventh Ecumenical Council held by the Emperor Constantine V, uh, which was an iconoclast council, in Constantinople, attended by I think, 338 bishops, who all agreed that there shouldn't be any icons. And then, about 30 years later, the Empress Irene held another ecumenical council, uh, just outside of Constantinople, with many of the same bishops, and they agreed that we should have icons. And uh, this is a well, it's kind of remarkable because it just—it's sort of unheard of, you know. When you when you think of all these other countries to talk about, there's really never been uh, a, almost you know where a case where the people completely disagree about the basic issue. What they disagree about is how do we say the certain little kind of exact formulas. But here, you know, they're completely opposite, and uh, that's kind of shocking. And and the reason the difference is that. This was somewhere as, let's say, the, the uh, divinity of Christ, uh, the Trinity, were the incarnation, were part of the basic gospel that was preached by Christ and the apostles and was held universally by the whole church. 
the question of icons is not was not that same uniform uh, kind of apostolically based uh, doctrine. So within the church, there was a, a certain ambiguity. Now some people have have looked and said, well, uh, you know, the Muslims were there, and well, the other other side of this that's different is that in the past we tend to have a, you know, different theologians disagree about the right way to say something and then uh, the church would be divided up and then the emperor would come in and say, okay, well, bishops get together and try and work this out. In this case, uh, iconoclasm was really driven by an emperor to start with. So it's a, it's a kind of imperial <coughs> heresy where... The Emperor Leo III decided that uh, we should not have icons in our churches and kind of started making decrees to that effect and, and getting his uh, troops to remove icons. So it started out with the Emperor you know, making a decision rather than as some controversy within the, uh, within the church itself. But by the time uh, when you get to Leo's son, uh, Constantine, Constantine is the one who has this, this council, uh, called the Council of 754, and it's the uh, you know, 300, somehow the 330 plus bishops, I think. You know, make this make this decision. Now, so people have tried to say, okay, well, what? Uh, so it was just okay. The church was going along, uh, having icons, and all of a sudden, this, this crazy emperor Leo suddenly decided, well, no more icons, and it took uh, 200 years for the church to get the icons back. You know, finally, but that uh, one, but uh, I think it was final, it was 840. So. About 120 years to get them back. Okay, that's so. But that's not. I mean, that, that would be kind of surprising uh, if, that the, the church would take 120 years to overthrow some strange edict that the crazy emperor made. And people have thought, well, this is the time of the Muslims, the Muslim conquest. So Muslims, the Muslims don't have icons because they don't believe in them. So perhaps you know the emperor was influenced by the Muslims and. This is why this happened. But it seems that uh, <coughs> the, the, the ambiguity that I referred to earlier that led, you know, you know, basically all bishops of the church to accept iconoclasm and then 30 years later to reject it, uh, was, is, is more than just the emperor being influenced by Muslim theology. In fact, it's sort of it'd be very strange that you know, Byzantine emperor who was fighting against the Muslims would be adopting uh, Muslim theology and wanting to them. It seems that this, uh, not only the decision that Leo's uh, decisions, but the kind of their, their uh, tenacity within the church are a result of that iconoclasm reflected certain Christian fears about uh, idolatry, and ultimately the, the, the struggle is a long one 
that uh, involves a lot of theological discussion that finally defeats iconoclasm not on a sort of simple basis of, well, we had the icons and now this emperor took them away and so we want them back, but in discussing the implications of you know, what does it mean to have icons or to not have icons. And the ultimate decision is that uh, our, our theology of, the, of Christ's incarnation demands the, the existence of icons. And this is so it all it ends up becoming the solution finally becomes a Christological solution. And this is why uh, it's dealt with in Father Meindorf's uh, book, The Christ of Eastern Christian Thought. It's a book on, on Christology in the Byzantine Empire. And uh, <laughs> it's the one of later chapters is on the iconoclast controversy because he points out it's essentially a Christological problem. Not uh, not just the problem of, of uh, let's say pious practice or church church architecture, but in fact it reflects uh, what does the incarnation mean? If Christ became man, what in what way did his human did his human nature uh, remain human or not? And this all comes about in the later question part as to uh, the iconoclast being kind of saying, well, no, his humanity was, was deified, so it can't be pictured anymore. Well, that, and uh, this also, with some harkening back to the early originist uh, theology, that, you know, that, that the incarnation was sort of a temporary thing leading up to the spiritual, uh, you know, kind of, uh, in fact, thinking for us, too, originists, thinking that, that we, our bodies, uh, will pass away that we're really aiming for a spiritual life without the body so therefore pictures of Christ's body or saints uh, you know from the origin's point of view were sort of a backward phenomenon going back to the physical body which was something we should leave behind but the church rejected origin and ultimately uh, rejected the implications of that theology there's a number of uh, books on iconoclasm uh, those mentioned. The first, of course, is the uh, volume 14 of the Nicene Fathers, which had the Seventh Ecumenical Council, and a lot of the documents uh, pertaining to the whole controversy that you can look at. It's a, it's a great resource for all the Ecumenical Councils. The, uh, on the history side, there's this uh, chronicle of Theophanes uh, that is contemporary with the Iconoclast controversy, and it's a big thing in Greek, but the part uh, that's translated into English is the part dealing with this time period, which is a, the time he lived, so it's kind of most interesting to read about. So that's available in paperback. And Father uh, Meinhardt's book, there's also, he wrote a book called uh, Byzantine Theology, that's a chapter on this, and then uh, John Hussey's uh, History of the Church in Byzantine Empire has, has a very nice, long, a detailed chapter on the events of the Iconoclast controversy. Father Meindorf, though, I think is, uh, is probably the best thing in terms of analyzing the theology of the, of the controversy, either in this or in the other book, too. But the, uh, the writings of the Church Fathers, uh, John of Damascus' uh, On the Divine Images, his defense of the icons. Uh, it, now it's uh, translated to English and published by St. Vladimir's Press. Theodore the Studite, also 
wrote the Nortox uh, writing and defending the icon, some very, very good uh, things, and that's available in English through St. Vladimir's as well. And uh, John Damascus's other writings are also available uh, through there's the Fathers of the Church series as this kind of collected writings, and then uh, St. Vladimir's recently published uh, three of his sermons on Dormition of Mother of God in a, among a collection of them, along too with uh, Patriarch Hermanos, who is the patriarch who resisted iconoclasm too, his uh, one level virginary. And we'll see actually there's a connection between uh, the veneration of the of Mother of God, in a way, and, and, and uh, the iconoclasm because the uh, movement against the icons went to more than just icons. There's uh, some secular history books uh, from an Orthodox point of view. What was most interesting is George Ostrogorsky's History of the Byzantine State. And then there's some uh, more modern ones by Warren Treadwell out of Stanford University Press. Uh, he did a his whole history of the Byzantine Empire, his, his history of Byzantine State Society, but also a uh, book on the called the Byzantine Revival, which is about the second half. It goes from the Empress Irene to the second, includes the second half of iconoclasm. So that's, those are mainly dealing with secular events, but they're uh, very detailed and, and really uh, vivid uh, portrayals of the time. So if you want to read about it. The uh, Emperor Leo came into the, became emperor uh, 717 during a time of uh, great danger for the Byzantine Empire. The uh, Muslim conquest had begun in the 630s with the fall of the Syria, the Muslims. At this time, after a, a sort of sort of a pause during which the uh, Muslim world was involved in civil war during the time of Constantine the, the Fourth and the Sixth Ecumenical Council, the Umayyad dynasty kind of solidified control and began a, uh, a major campaign to take over what is now Turkey, and that which was a, a part of the Byzantine Empire, Asia Minor at the time, and Constantinople. And the uh, Muslim armies were coming up through, all the way through uh, Asia Minor, and then they had also developed a large fleet, and were, they take, took over the uh, island of Crete, and uh, were coming up to Constantinople itself. In 717, uh, the Muslim fleet was parked outside Constantinople for almost a year, I think. Uh, and so this was a time of uh, tremendous military disaster for some time. Uh, so when Leo became emperor, he was, you know, the empire was fighting for its life. He, there was a, a defeat of the, of the Arab fleet that was a miraculous one, uh, in which I think he brought the cross out and there was a storm that uh, upset the fleet and the fleet abandoned the siege of Constantinople. Leo, in many ways, carried on the type of thinking that the Emperor Heraclius earlier, when the empire had almost completely been overrun by the Persians, uh, Heraclius developed this idea of the Byzantine Empire uh, as the people of God, kind of identifying with the Old Testament. And uh, he also had recovered the cross from the Persians, and so he saw 
correct? It's kind of also identified with Constantine as God uh, providing the cross as a sign of his protection over the empire, and that, that the empire, just the empire, was his people, the people of God, fighting against all the pagan enemies, the way that Israel in the Old Testament was fighting against the pagan enemies. So Leo kind of carried on this idea of, of the warfare to preserve the Byzantine state as kind of being a, a sacred war against uh, the forces of, uh, of paganism. Anyway. Now, as part of this uh, disaster that had occurred, the, uh, there was a kind of sense that that the, in order to victoriously overcome all these terrible things that were happening, that the Byzantine Empire needed uh, repentance, some kind of major repentance. But obviously, something was terribly wrong that the whole, empire, whole Christian Empire is being taken over by a model. So, but something's wrong, and the Emperor's job was to lead the Empire to repent of whatever the problem was, in order that God's favor would again be restored and he would preserve his people, just like in the Old Testament. Uh, this is what led uh, Leo in uh, 726, I think. Uh, yeah, 726. He decides that that the problem is idolatry. So, and in particular, the icons. And so he begins the destruction of icons. And. Uh, and some persecution of people supporting it as a way of okay, because he sort of identifies this as much this must be what God is angry about is that the Byzantine Empire is kind of falling away into idolatry we need to cleanse the empire of the idolatry and the emperor is the person just like the king in the Old Testament the emperor is the person entrusted by God with the task of purifying his people. Now, this did not come completely out of the blue. Uh, there was, uh, or, or were there, were, there were bishops prior to Leo, in, uh, or like I said, in the earlier part of his reign, uh, that were questioning the veneration uh, of icons in Asia Minor before. Leo did any of this, so he didn't just make this up. There were there were bishops who had concerns, and part of the reason for this was that uh, the well, the veneration of saints and uh, the uh, use of icons was something that had expanded during the uh, you know six let's say six seventh coming into eighth century. That was something that had been getting more uh, common in the Byzantine Empire. If you look at the very old Orthodox churches from the 4th century or something, uh, there are icons in them, but there are few, or relatively few, compared to what our, our churches are like. Also, they was, uh, there are more, you know, uh, instructional, let's say, rather than they don't have so much time for veneration as we do. But so this, the people uh, supporting icons can legitimately say, well, look, there have been icons back, you know, there have always been icons. 
what the, the bishops who are opposing icons are looking at is, well, there's more and more use of icons. There's more uh, that people have icons that people are venerating various holy saints, and there's just more, uh, in a sense, I guess, the, one of the things about the, uh, the monastic movement was that it was a movement outside of the structure of the church. I mean, all the monks just were people who just went out in the desert, started praying, and then God uh, sanctified them, and they began working miracles. Leo is, and his, the bishops who support him are very concerned about purifying and strengthening the structure of the church. They uh, are not really against, totally against having uh, physical objects you know, being venerated, they they do believe in the holiness of the cross that people should venerate the cross, the holiness of the church building, uh, the holiness of the Eucharist. So they're not uh, Gnostics, but what they were, what they wanted was they wanted everything to be in order. So the vision that kind of comes out of the iconoclast uh, theology is sort of, of the emperor and the bishops as kind of the source of uh, or guardian in a way of, of a channel of divine grace and and of spiritual authority is sort of the structure and what the iconoclasts ultimately you know they start out with the icons but in fact what happens is they uh, his son Constantine V beyond the council the council only condemns the icons but the in his own uh, work, what happens is he, can, he, he expands that to uh, veneration of saints and, uh, and monasticism. In fact, what Constantine begins is a, uh, so to say the emperor and the bishops versus the monks. And Constantine, you know, has a sort of program of destroying monasteries and persecuting monks to get rid of them because he sees them as kind of unauthorized uh, people. Also, the monks were defending the icons too. But uh, people having, kind of claiming spiritual authority who are not part of the structure. And so, ultimately it ends with the persecution of monks uh, and against the veneration of saints. And besides, with saints, of course, if you're not going to venerate saints, you don't venerate relics. And, uh, and of course, the icons. So, in some ways, uh, a seemingly very, almost very, because we're a very Protestant looking uh, type of church where we, we get rid of monasticism, we don't, we don't venerate saints, we don't, uh, don't have any icons, and we don't have any relics that are being venerated. On the other hand, we do have bishops, the Eucharist, the veneration of the cross. But not entirely what we would think of it. Not, not, certainly not a modern present, but a, a more austere type of church. And this uh, is, in some ways, uh, let's say an attempt to go to push back the developments of the recent centuries towards more veneration of the saints, more icons. Uh, you know more, uh, more veneration of relics, but but the uh, 
the church uh, have these things, and as we'll see, ultimately the church, for theological reasons, ultimately comes back and says, well, we, need, we have to have this. But, it, but at first, it seems like a, a reform. It actually means that's what Leo thought of himself, not as, not as someone introducing a new theology, but as, as someone who wanted to reform the laxity of his time, that people were getting carried away with their uh, veneration of objects. And the reason for it was, again, this, this crisis, because, because you had this tremendous destruction of the Christian Empire, which you know had ruled Egypt and Syria, parts of Mesopotamia, and uh, the whole Mediterranean world for such a long time, and now all of a sudden uh, Constantinople is about to fall, and every, the whole world is about to become Muslim. It's uh, it was frightening. Actually, Spain had fallen to the Muslims. Actually, during this time is when the uh, the battle in France is going to be fought between the Arabs and Charles uh, Martel to push back the Arabs there. So it was time it looked like the whole Christian world was about to be engulfed by Islam. Now, in this first phase, uh, the focus, okay, was on that this this is all you know kind of idolatry, and so the and and the bishops agreed and they condemned icons and. That seemed to be the end, except that there were several things. Uh, one was that there was a monk living under the Muslims, uh, whom we know of as John of Damascus. He had been a, a family of that were the uh, like financial controllers for the Muslim Caliphate in Damascus. They had worked uh, when the Muslims took over. They did not throw out all the Christians and take it, you know, they were armies coming out, essentially armies coming out for plunder from Saudi Arabia and they, uh, and they took over Roman provinces. They did not want to disrupt uh, the money-making capacity of these provinces, so they just tried to leave everything kind of how it was. You had, you had an IRS there, that's great, you know, you work there, that's fine, and uh, you just forwarded the taxes over here, and that was... That was how they operate. They wanted, they just wanted the money. They didn't want to mess it up. So, John of Damascus' family was sort of like the person who worked in that tax collecting capacity. Now, during his lifetime, though, so, when he started out, the, uh, the Muslim ruler who was there was pretty favorable to Christians and just kind of gave complete tolerance. The next one was not so favorable and started persecuting the Christians somewhat. And during his reign, uh, John decided to leave his job in Damascus and go to the monastery of St. Saba outside Jerusalem, become a monk. Uh, down in the, what's now, you can visit his cell and his uh, little chapel where he served as a priest, are still there in Mar Saba Monastery, uh, up, just outside of, uh, the, in the desert beyond, outside Beth, Bethlehem, which about a few miles from <coughs> Jerusalem. And he was, uh, he was very well educated and he became also a great theological writer. And he wrote a, a book called On the Fount of Knowledge, a book about the sort of uh, philosophical, the terminological definitions, the basis of Orthodox theology, uh, and this kind of summary of, of Orthodox theology. And then he also uh, wrote a book about heresies, cataloging all these things. During his lifetime, 
this is what the Emperor Leo started doing the destruction of the icons. So he wrote his defense of icons. And his defense kind of dealt, you know, his response really initially to this uh, charge that the uh, that this is that this is pagan idolatry, and he, uh, John, brings up the defense of the incarnation. He said, "Well, in the Old Testament, God, uh, in His divine nature, could not be pictured, and so if you made uh, trying to make pictures of God, you know, you're you're trying to picture the unpicturable, and so." That's not allowed. And then uh, he also pointed out that there was uh, the cherubs, uh, cherubim on the, on the thing, so that there were pictures of uh, some things in the temple. But the incarnation of Christ means that now the Son of God has taken on human nature, so therefore he can be uh, seen, and therefore a picture made of him. And he also made this distinction of. Uh, veneration and worship. And he said, well, worship can only go to God. And so, the Orthodox Church, we do not worship icons, we don't worship saints, we don't worship the Virgin Mary. We only worship uh, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. But that it is proper to venerate or honor, uh, just like we would honor the Emperor, or honor a righteous person, so we should also honor saints and Virgin Mary and show respect for their images. So just like actually the uh, you know, pictures of the emperors that were up, if you had to show respect to the picture of them, if you show respect to the picture of an emperor, well then of course you can show respect to the picture of a holy person. So he makes this distinction. He also talks about that the veneration of an icon is not uh, the veneration for the, the wood. Uh, the thing itself is not being venerated, but rather that the, when an orthodox person is venerating an icon, we're not venerating uh, this, we have this holy picture over there, but we're venerating the person in the icon. Uh, so this the point is uh, we venerate veneration of the, of the person, the person picture. Now, because he was living among the Muslims, uh, well, up, back in the Byzantine Empire, the emperor was not, uh, Emperor Leo and Emperor Constantine's son were not kind of just offering this uh, iconoclasm up as a kind of friendly suggestion you know, for people to talk about and think whether they might like to destroy their icons or not. But they were going around destroying the icons and people who got in the way uh, were killed, actually. The uh, patriarch Imamus was executed finally after some time uh, and many monks were killed and it just was, uh, was not a place where you could stand around talking about why it was a good idea to venerate icons. So, John's uh, uh, book that we have here, you know, he was one of the few people who got to say anything because he was protected. Now, the, uh, as a result, the, uh, the, the Byzantine Empire did not, Leo and, and uh, those who followed him did not think very highly of John. They were, they were pretty upset that he was writing this. And actually, when the, uh, 
in the council in 754, uh, part of the council that condemns the veneration of icons also condemns uh, anathematizes uh, Damascus for his, uh, his terrible books criticizing the emperor. You know, and uh, not that they're you know, personal, but they're but because of this defending the icons. So, uh, somewhere there is the story that they have a life of uh, John of Damascus that was written quite a bit later that talks about um, John's hand being cut off. And it's in the story, it tells that this was uh, something that the emperor sent a message, you know, for, for the, the Muslim king to have this done. And then uh, God miraculously restored the hand uh, by the intercessions of the Virgin Mary. And this, uh, there's some question about like when this all happened because he, uh, I think in the story it says that this happened in Damascus, uh, but in the in the other materials that of John of Damascus's writings, it seems that he was uh, ordained a priest in Marsaba Monastery prior to like the outbreak of iconoclasm. But this is all, uh, you know, when you have all these pieces of evidence. You know, we don't have the whole picture, so how that all fits together, I mean, that's kind of, that's something for uh, people to uh, stretch their noodles about, you know, trying to figure out ways to make all this, all these pieces uh, fit, and, you know, but there was something, uh, John, in some ways was protected, but in other ways was, was not uh, fixed. The other thing is that the uh, previous Muslim king who, who didn't, wasn't so friendly to Christians, also did uh, occasionally kill Christians who, <laughs> who uh, criticized Islam, and uh, it's possible that John, speaking out and defending icons, was, of course, not uh, upholding Muslim doctrines either, so he may have gotten in trouble there. The, the second thing that, that got in the way of this uh, program was that what the Constantine's son married a girl from Athens, from an aristocratic family that was uh, venerators of icons. And that they were very confident after you know, the reigns of two emperors and ecumenical council that icon problem was solved. You know, there was not going to be any more question about this. But when uh, Custine's son died, the, uh, his, his son was a little boy. Constantine VI, and the, the Empress was sort of left in charge as the mother, you know, and that was Irene. And Irene, uh, in many ways, you know, uh, when you, if you read any of these books about her secular uh, career, uh, was not perhaps the greatest emperor or empress that ever lived. Uh, in fact, you know, not not very good in many ways, but. But the good thing she did do was that she saw an opportunity to try to correct uh, the problem of iconoclasm. So she held in uh, 787 the uh, seventh, what we have now, the seventh ecumenical council, uh, which was the, of course, from the point of view of the iconoclasm, they already had their seventh ecumenical council. So she holds another one, which nullified this one. And the, uh, the council restores the veneration of icons. It's uh, essentially many people have sort of criticized the council because it's not very theological. 
you know, it, it has a lot of emphasis on uh, stories of miracles connected with icons. And, well, you know, first you kind of think, well, obviously people just, maybe they just weren't very uh, well educated or something, people came to the temple. But in thinking about it, I think actually the reason, there's a reason for that, and that is because the emperors were really arguing that icons and saints were sort of illegitimate, illegitimate as spiritual authorities or sources of divine grace. That they, that the, that, you know, the grace of God and the spiritual authority strictly went, you know, through the bishops and was in the Eucharist, in the church building, and that was it. Everything else outside is no good. And so the stories compiled in the Seventh Council, they're relevant because they're answering that charge. They're saying, well, wait a minute, the grace of God is present in the saints. The grace of God is present in miracles occurring with the icons. That God is actually acting beyond, I mean, there is, of course, not saying it's not in the Eucharist, not in the church, but that, that God's activity is not just limited to the bishops and ordained clergy. It's not just limited to the church services, but it goes out and these and these spiritual uh, monks that were living out in the desert, you know, they did perform miracles in illness. It also goes back to uh, the, uh, the icon made without hands by Christ, where he, uh, the cloth made an icon for uh, Afgar, King of Edessa, also to St. Luke's uh, painting an icon of, of the Virgin Mary. And saying, well, look, if Christ is making an icon, St. Luke's making an icon at the time, you know, uh, that the story of St. Luke, at the time that he sent the gospel to Theophilus, he also was sending along this icon of Virgin Mary to go with it. And actually, I think even maybe some scenes of the gospel, too, uh, of the gospel stories. So, it's, t it's telling us two things. It's first, that the icons are not just a recent invention, but that they have been present in the church from Christ, that they really were instituted by Christ and the apostles. Second, that uh, the grace of God has sort of confirmed the, the icons, that God, that God has chosen to use the icons as vehicles of his grace to this world and, and, and to the saints as well. So it's... Uh, a kind of showing the validity of this, let's say, uh, development in the church that the, the emperors that were trying to suppress in kind of kind of trying to kind of follow the model of Old Testament Israel, uh, the the council says, well, that's you know not uh, it's going against what God Himself has revealed. Second, they also brought in the, uh, the theology of John of Damascus, that the incarnation meant that we're no longer living in the Old Testament, that the Son of God is now revealed uh, physically, and if, you know, if, re if he really became man, then obviously if you had a, a Polaroid with you, uh, you would have gotten a picture. You know? So, uh, and that also that they, they make, the council makes this distinction of the veneration and worship, and this... Uh, it's an important distinction. Sometimes in English, you know, in English, not all words aren't always explicit. But we should be careful not to be sloppy about our words and uh, talk about, you know, worship of the Virgin Mary or something, as some people do. Uh, 
because of, and they said, well, okay, the worship of the Virgin Mary is not the same as the worship of God, but the council and John of Damascus both are very clear in using use two separate words for these things and saying they have nothing to do with each other, that we cannot worship the things, we cannot worship the Virgin Mary. So, uh, if we want to kind of present the Orthodox faith to non-Orthodox, we have to we have to use this, be careful the same way that the fathers are being careful of making a very clear distinction between the veneration or respect we might show for an icon or a saint and the worship which is due to God alone. And since the church went to great lengths to make that clear in Greek, in English, we have to, uh, we have to make the same distinction. Okay, now so that that seems that ended in iconoclasm uh, seemingly, uh, just like here the iconoclasm, aha, icons are ended. <laughs> but what happened is that uh, Irene, you know, aside, she was very nice, she got the church situation straightened out, but uh, otherwise wasn't very gifted as, a, as an empress, and there was a lot of uh, problems. Uh, one was that uh, she was ruling as the regent for her son and kind of had her son uh, somehow was involved with her son being killed and uh, then her the, uh, the troops you know were losing a lot of battles and so she was overthrown by her own finance minister uh, Maxipras who was better administrator but and he was doing well but they were, uh, this time the Byzantine, besides the Arabs coming up from the south, they had the Bulgars coming down from the north. And Isipras got together a big army and he thought, well, he would go get rid of those Bulgars once and for all. So he refused and he, peace just kept going, going, going until he got up into their territory. And then one day he discovered that he was uh, in a pass completely surrounded by Bulgars and the army was trapped and he couldn't get out and uh, there was a tremendous uh, massacre and the whole Byzantine army was wiped out and he was killed and the older king had a, uh, a drinking cup made out of his uh, head uh, that uh, <laughs> seems to happen to these emperors that get caught like that but uh, anyway that you know that's disaster and then the next couple uh, emperors who were pro well the one actually one after that that was uh, pro icons also disasters and so the next one that came along, uh, they uh, <coughs> they decided the army was kind of getting upset. They're losing all these battles, and they looked back to the good old days when Leo and Constantine were winning, and said, "Well, see what happens. You know, here we have these nice pious emperors back there, and we won lots of battles, and now we've got these people with their icons, and we're losing all the time." So the next emperor, that he. Uh, he didn't come in as an iconoclast, but he switched to iconoclasm in 815. And that was another Leo. Not coincidentally. And so in 815, after some discussions, he was interesting. Uh, he was trying to reach a compromise with the Orthodox bishops to get them to kind of make some restrictions on icon veneration, and uh, the patriarch Nicephorus was unwilling to budge, and Theodore, uh, the people at this time that were kind of on the icon, pro icon side, was the patriarch Nicephorus, 
who also wrote the books, uh, Defending Icons, but I haven't seen them translated anywhere. And the uh, the abbot, Theodore the Studite, they, uh, they refused to compromise. So he, Leo, just goes ahead and gets some iconoclasts together and they uh, they make a decree in 815 uh, prohibiting uh, veneration of icons. And it's interesting, he was not, uh, at this point, he didn't try to, uh, he didn't try to eliminate icons, they just said, well, okay, you can have icons, but you can't venerate them. And then uh, these guys were sent off to uh, exile and a prison somewhere on an island that uh, ended their lives there. And uh, Leo's son, Theophilus, was even more kind of, well, excuse me, I'm sorry, Leo, no, it wasn't Leo's son. Leo was overthrown by Michael, who kind of just played the fence, kind of nice, but his son, Theophilus, uh, was, had a very uh, dogmatic iconoclast as his tutor, was uh, very violent and began all these violent persecutions against uh, against uh, people with icons. But he also married uh, uh, someone who venerated icons, and so her name is Theodora, Saint Theodora. And so when Theophilus died, uh, Saint Theodora revealed that at the last minute he had repented and wanted icons restored. And so this is what we commemorate uh, on the you know, first Sunday of Lent, uh, the, the uh, rest, restoration of icons. What do we, we just call restoration of icons? The restoration of icons doesn't refer to the Empress Irene, but to the Empress Theodora. So it's kind of interesting that uh, in both cases, the uh, uh, victory of orthodoxy was, re was a result of uh, the iconoclast emperors marrying uh, women who except the veneration of icons, and so when they died, they, uh, the, the uh, widows, uh, the, so 